You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on April 16th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for Kids and Others. Um, I'm probably not as perky as I might be today. I got my second vaccine dose yesterday. and I thought I was doing just fine, but I, the last uh, hour or so, I've been decaying a bit. Although, because I'm a data-oriented person, I've been wearing some continuous temperature measuring thing, so I know that I don't have a fever yet, at least. Um, so anyway, easy questions for today, he says, famous last words. So I noticed a question here from Scott about uh, what are some of the implications of uh, my new kind of science for medicine? I suppose that would be a, a, um, a pertinent thing to talk about here. You know, it's an interesting question. What, uh, when we look at medicine, there's sort of the question of, for example, can we predict what's going to happen in a medical system? Can we, uh, when we, when we see that there's some complicated process going on of some cells, some tumor, some this, some that, um, you know, to what extent can we predict what it's going to do? Well, one of the lessons of my new kind of science is this phenomenon of computational irreducibility. So you might think if you know the rules by which something operates, if you know what every individual cell is going to do, and you know how each cell replicates or whatever else, then you might say, okay, um, given that we know the rules by which this works, we should be able to work out what the large scale consequences of those rules will be. Well, one of the big results of the science that I've done is that that isn't the case, that it's, that it's actually quite ubiquitous. If you just pick programs, even kind of at random, to find programs where, even though you know what the program is, even though you know, know what the underlying rule is, to work out the overall behavior is, you, the only way you can really do it is by following each step in the actual uh, execution of the program. You can't sort of jump ahead and say, so I know what it's going to do in the end. I think that point is really important for medicine. That is, it's something where you can say, well, we know the rules by which this works, but then what's it actually going to do? Well, it may be very hard to tell. For example, in the immune system, it is very likely the case that things that we think we, you know, the things that happen in the immune system, the reason it's hard to have intuition about what the immune system is going to do in a particular case is because of this phenomenon of computational irreducibility, uh, that even though you might know the basic rules by which these immune uh, uh, cells interact, that, um, uh, that it's hard to tell what the overall consequences will be. So for example, in the case of, you know, could a vaccine stimulate autoimmunity? Well, autoimmunity means, so, so normally our immune system is set up our sort of sophisticated, there are two different versions of the immune system, the so-called primitive immune system and the adaptive immune system, the one that we mammals and things like that have, is an immune system which learns in the first few years of our life or in the sort of pre-teen uh, pre period of our lives, kind of learns what molecular structures correspond to cells that are part of us 
and what correspond to nasty outside invaders that we should attack with our immune systems. So the adaptive immune system has this process of learning what kind of, what kind of things should be attacked and what kind of things are self. If it makes a mistake and it says, actually that kind of cell that is really part of you, it's you know, a pancreatic beta cell or it's a, it's a myelin sheath of a nerve or something like this, that's actually part of your, your organs um, in autoimmunity and autoimmune diseases, what happens is that the immune system makes a mistake and starts attacking those cells um, as well as attacking external marauders, so to speak. And, um, and, and so, for example, in a, in, a, um, uh, in a vaccine, what one's doing is stimulating the immune system to recognize a type of attacker, let's say the spike protein of the COVID-19 uh, virus, um, and um, that one's, one's making it recognize that. So it's ready. And when it's exposed to some potentially quite small number of, of uh, you know, you, you, uh, you inhale a few virus particles that the system is ready to attack. And so it can swing into action quickly and put enough immune effort behind getting rid of those invaders that the invaders never get to start replicating in large numbers and cause trouble. So that's kind of the idea of the vaccine, but, but things can happen like that it can be the case that just as your immune system is learning to attack the spike protein, that, the, uh, that there are pieces of the spike protein whose sequence looks too close to something that is actually part of you or whose structure looks, whose, whose uh, geometrical structure looks too close to something that's part of you, a geometrical structure at a molecular scale looks too close to something that's part of you. And so your immune system then suddenly learns that it should be attacking something which turns out to be part of you. And that's, that's bad because that produces autoimmunity. But knowing how that works and being able to sort of trace through, you know, in the immune system. So, you know, just as we have antibodies that uh, can kind of recognize uh, bad cells or cells that have bad viruses inside them and so on and mark those cells um, for, for later attack, um, the, uh, you know, they're about... Uh, the, the the antibodies work at a molecular scale, and they have variable. They have pieces of protein, immunoglobulins, that um, can uh, have any it, it, the, where they sort of have randomly picked sequences. And there are about ten billion different kinds of antibodies that us humans can produce, and we're always producing randomly lots of these different lots of these different kinds of antibodies. And then the thing that happens is when there's an attacker whose structure, whose molecular signature matches one type of antibody out of those 10 billion, let's say, then there's a mechanism for that type of antibody to get amplified and you get more and more of those kinds of antibodies, which is what leads to uh, the, both the attack on the, um, but leads to sort of uh, setting up the sort of the, the attack on the attacker, so to speak, um, or in the case of a vaccine, getting you ready to attack the attacker, were the atta attacker to arrive for real, so to speak. Um, but one of the questions is always, okay, so you're producing the antibodies, but the antibodies can uh, themselves represent things that can coat things and, and that you could, um, uh, you could end up with too many antibodies. So you end up with anti-antibodies and you end up with a whole hierarchy, a whole network of different kinds of antibodies and anti-antibodies and so on and so on and so on, which is all somehow maintained in some kind of 
dynamic equilibrium in us in ways that are not totally well understood. And in fact, there are two principal kinds of cells in the, uh, well, there are many kinds of cells in the immune system. There are two white blood cell types, uh, B cells and T cells. And uh, the B cells are the ones that um, are associated with antibodies and antibody production and so on. Antibodies themselves are, are much smaller little pieces of protein. Um, but uh, the T cells are the ones that uh, are also involved in, in immunity. So one, one place where you sort of have a memory of what's going on is in B cells that can produce uh, collections of antibodies that will attack some particular attacker, so to speak. But T cells are also responsible for, T, T cells are, are used in different places of the immune system. Um, they're used, there's a, these so-called killer T cells, which are, which are T cells that kind of go in and finish uh, the job when something has been marked by, by antibodies and so on and so on and so on. But, but uh, something which I must say I was only dimly aware of before recent times is that T cells themselves can be sort of encode immunity. So just as there are all these different possible kinds of antibodies produced by B cells, there are also, uh, there's a T cell receptor, which is a, a region of the surface of the T cell, which can determine what the T cell can bind to, what, what kinds of cells that T cell will, uh, will attach itself to and potentially attack. And so it turns out for coronaviruses, of which COVID-19 is an example, uh, T cell immunity is actually an important thing. And, um, the uh, but that wasn't you know in sort of the standard story of immunology that was it was known but it was not an emphasized thing. It turns out to be pretty important, and it turns out that's probably one of the long-term places where immunity, where the where the memory of immunity gets stored for us for things like coronaviruses. And it's not clear, for example, when you look at um, um, uh, you know vaccines and things, there's a question of to what extent the um, uh, that's generating antibody response to what extent it's generating T cell immunity, and uh, in the in the and the trials of these vaccines, both things were measured, and um, uh, the, it's more difficult to measure the, the antibody measuring the um, uh, antibody production is, is a considerably easier piece of laboratory practice than measuring the T cell receptor, which actually requires genome genetic sequencing and other kinds of things. Um, I think at least, I think it requires that. I don't think there's a way to do it with just pure assays. Um, the, uh, but anyway, and it seems to take, I, I know as a practical matter, it takes these labs weeks to come back with T cell immunity results. Whereas uh, the uh, antibody uh, measurements seem to come back in a few days. Um, but in any case, that, uh, let's see, we were talking about, so, so I mean, the, the whole structure of the immune system and this dynamic equilibrium that's maintained by all these different kinds of cells and so on, it's a pretty complicated thing. It's a very computational kind of thing. And getting intuition about what's going on is a story, I think, of things like computational irreducibility and other kinds of phenomena. In fact, I was just thinking that some of the things we've done for our recent project in, in understanding fundamental physics um, and the way that there are sort of these interactions between immune system cells um, may actually be something that that we can uh, make a model of using the same formalism as we've used for physics. I don't know whether that will work yet, but um, the immune system has been very hard to understand and it's very hard to get intuition about what's gonna happen. There are some sort of pieces of what goes on where you can say, oh, we understand that, but there's an awful lot of it that, that's pretty hard to understand. Um, so, 
um, the question here, uh, I mean, talking about medicine further, the, um, I think, so sort of the story of computational irreducibility, how computationally should you think about medical processes? So here's another thing I've thought about recently. If you look at a medical textbook, you will often see sort of flow charts of this affects that affects that, you know, the level of this hormone goes up, it will produce this, it will cause that to go down. It's, it's a very kind of a sort of a, 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 a definite chart of this causes that and so on. Well, the actual sort of collection of, of chemical concentrations in our cells, it's a pretty complicated story. And whether you can really tell that story in terms of this produces that, produces that, produces that, this sort of very sequentialized story is not clear. And in fact, I've been suspecting that the way that a lot of kind of the molecular scale computation, because in a sense, we biological systems are the only known working example of kind of molecular scale computation. In our, in us, in every cell in our bodies all the time, there are all these essentially computational processes happening. Molecules are binding, molecules have, have, have complicated sequences, they generate other molecules, they do other things. You can think of that as a great big computation. And the question is, if we were going to write a programming language, for example, to describe that computation, what would it look like? Would it be something that has, you do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this? Or is it something where there's lots of different threads happening in parallel? I suspect it's more that lots of different threads happening in parallel, and it's been super difficult for us to make ways to sort of make languages that describe that kind of process. And so I kind of suspect that part of the story of why biology and medicine is difficult is that it's been hard to have a sort of description language for that, um, uh, uh, for that kind of um, biological process. Um, that, you know, the idea that it's this causes that causes that very sequentialized is probably not correct. It's probably not the right, sort of meta way to think about biological processes. I mean, the, the big meta discovery of biology in 1953 was the discovery of the DNAs, uh, the, the kind of uh, genetic information on DNA, the fact that we can encode the structure of all of our proteins and the way that ultimately we build a biological organism in terms of, for example, for us humans, the six billion base pairs that exist along the DNA molecule um, in, every, in every one of our cells. And the fact that one could think about sort of genetics as being a story of this digital information, the six billion base pairs of digital information, um, was kind of a, a crucial organizing principle for understanding genetics and understanding how heredity worked and so on. In terms of how biology works on sort of an ongoing basis, what happens in all of our cells, what happens in the immune system, uh, what happens in other sort of dynamical processes in us, we, we don't have as good a, a kind of a, a large scale framework for thinking about that. And I've kind of come to this, recently come to this suspect that it all has to do with this kind of notion of, uh, um, well, what we call in our physics project, multi-way systems, these things where there are multiple sort of threads of history that you can consider, multiple different chemical reactions that can all be happening in parallel and, and finding a way to sort of understand all of those together, which I think is difficult for us humans because we're really programmed, we're really set up. In fact, our very, I think the very essence of our consciousness has a lot to do with the sequentialization of, of events and time, so to speak. So it's kind of necessary to do something different from that to understand these kinds of biological processes. At least that's my, my current suspicion. Um, and 
you know, will that lead us to something where we have a better, just like in genetics, before DNA was discovered to have this digital information, people had a zillion different effects that they were talking about and this thing happened and that thing happened. It's all incredibly complicated. And then there's an organizing principle. We don't really have that for sort of systematic biology right now, systems level biology. And maybe that's something that can come as a result of thinking about things like multi-way systems and multi-way computation and so on. We're not there yet. I will tell you as a sort of historical point, um, a person called Sidney Brenner, who was, uh, I think, the main discoverer of messenger RNA, the thing that's used in the vaccine that I just got yesterday, for example, um, the uh, uh, he discovered that in, when was it? In probably mm, before 1960. don't remember exactly when. But anyway, uh, Sidney Brenner is, is uh, no longer alive, but, but um, uh, he was a, a, a lively person, and he came to see me every few years, I guess, and uh, every time he would say, you should be working on biology. All the stuff you're doing about all of these kind of computational ideas, biology needs this. This is how, um, this is how you should pursue biology. And, and uh, he himself actually had had a long time interest in computation. When he was a, a medical student in South Africa, he'd written a letter to Alan Turing, for example, um, which uh, uh, and, and sort of been very interested in, in kind of the, the, the idea of Turing machines and later Turing's work and, and applications to biology in which Turing did not use Turing machines and a kind of little bit of a, a cognitive um, disconnect there, but, but um, um, that was in the 1950s. Um, but anyway, so Sidney Brenner was, I think the idea of messenger RNA um, is partly born out of kind of Sidney Brenner thinking in computational terms in terms of things like Turing machines and, and thinking about how biological processes might work at that level. And, and later on, well, later on, he did many other things, but in particular, he was responsible for the, uh, the one organism, the C. elegans nematode, little worm type critter, um, the, the one creature whose full uh, biological growth process is known. It's, it's about, what is it, a little less than 2,000 cells in the organism, and it's completely known how that organism uh, gets gets grows up, and that was that was the result of, of Sidney Brenner kind of leading that effort. In any case, so uh, you know, this question being asked about the relationship of sort of computational ideas and to to medicine. I mean, I would say one other thing that um, uh, is a long time thing that I've been curious about and, and never really made that much progress on. Is, is the following thing. If you look at medical diagnosis, okay, there's a medical diagnosis is very difficult. It's probably getting more difficult as more is known because the more that's known, the more, you know, you come in and you've got some symptom. And, you know, it might not be obvious whether that symptom is neurological to do with nerves, gastrointestinal to do with your intestines and so on, or, or whether it's, uh, you know, something, I don't know, some endocrine thing to do with, uh, the endocrine system and hormones and all this kind of thing, it might not be known what it is. You know, it's just like my neck hurts or something. And, um, you know, which of these things is it? Well, the problem is the more that's known in medicine, the more it tends to be the case that you have to have a specialist in each one of those areas in order to know a reasonable slice of the knowledge that's known in those areas. And so pretty quickly, you have to tree out, you know, which specialist do you go to? And once, you, once you're talking to that specialist, it's like that person is most likely going to say, well, I'm only thinking about it in terms of my particular subsystem. And it's either whether you have something wrong with that subsystem or you don't. And 
getting you know up in the tree to go examine another subsystem really hard often in the in the structure both the organizational structure of medicine and sort of the intellectual structure of medicine so you know medical diagnosis is difficult and probably getting even more difficult i mean i have to say that that i will say that as a, as a person who's just sort of interested in things how how things work i have for a very long time had sort of a little bit of a hobby of doing medical diagnosis um um and um i i well i have some friends who are who are rather good medical diagnosis people who've kind of gradually taught me things about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm not terrible at this point. I'm, I'm better than, I'm better than uh, I think most mediocre doctors. Let's put it that way. I'm not sure that's a necessarily a high bar, but, but um, um, it's been, it's interesting because in medical diagnosis, the, I mean, I, this is a, perhaps a relevant topic, but perhaps, perhaps of interest to people. I mean, the thing that I've noticed is it's partly a probability story and it's partly a story of whether you can think about probabilities in a, in a clear enough way. So one of the issues is a very typical thing is you have some symptoms. There are five possible things that are, you know, common causes of those symptoms. Okay. Maybe there's even one leading possible cause of those symptoms. Okay. You go in, you do more precise tests and then you say, nope, that's not it. The tests say that's not the cause. Then you go and you explore other things. You spend months exploring all these other things. And pretty soon you've concluded it's none of those five things. Well, it has to be something. And the mistake, the probability mistake is this. That first thing, that leading possibility that you kind of proved it wasn't, people almost never go back to that. They say, oh, we, we excluded that, we're done. And that's wrong because by the time you excluded everything else, the probabilities of the tests that you thought excluded that thing themselves being wrong, having some kind of false negative, false positive rate, whatever, is sufficiently large that, yeah, you really have to look at that one again. Because after you've exhausted everything else, you've got to go back to that one and say, was it really the case? If those tests had a 3% had a probability of not catching the thing and you've excluded everything else, then go back and look at that again, because maybe you hit that 3% of the test didn't work in that particular case. And people are, are remarkably bad um, at, at doing that, at, at, re at reverting back to things that, to hypotheses they already thought they excluded. I mean, it's also one of my meta principles, perhaps unfair, but, but I think um, is, uh, you know, there's a lot of a priori sort of assumptions made, uh, for example, in the medical profession, where you know, a very typical thing is you know, a young doctor who's just been through medical school. Well, in medical school, you, know, you get to see all kinds of exotic things that can happen. And um, so the young doctor's a priori probabilities for different kinds of things uh, are enhance the rare diseases. Whereas an older doctor who's been in practice for 40 years, it's like, look, I've never seen one of those. So it's like the a priori probability, yeah, I saw it in medical school, you know, if, uh, years and years ago, but I've never seen one of those in reality. So there's a tendency to kind of overassume that everything people have is something common. So it's kind of like the, the young doctors overdiagnose rare diseases and old doctors overdiagnose common diseases. Um, at least that's a, you know, that is again, it's one of these probability things of what's the a priori probability. It's, it's like, you know, you come in and you've got something and somebody says, you have this extremely rare tropical disease. And it's like, no, I don't. And they said, but look, you've got all the symptoms of this extremely rare tropical disease. And it's like, well, look, 
I haven't been to anywhere tropical ever in my life. And, you know, where on earth would I have got this tropical disease? And it's, it's like, well, it is true that your symptoms perhaps match this tropical disease, but in fact, the chance that you have it is incredibly small. It's sort of a mistake of probability assessment to say that. It's, it's sort of, it's like, uh, it's like if you were, um, uh, it's like for a search engine, you know, you have a page that incredibly well matches the, the, the things you're searching for, but it's a very unpopular page on the web. Where do you put it in the search rankings and so on? So in any case, there, there are these kinds of um, issues in medical diagnosis. I mean, I've, I've been interested actually, oh, when was it? 10, 15 years ago, I, I put quite a lot of work into trying to understand how one would make sort of automated medical diagnosis work better. Um, partly because certain kinds of, for example, these probability mistakes, you can avoid making those probability mistakes if you automate things. Um, you also can, you know, one of the issues in medical diagnosis is that that it tends to be the case that a lot of diagnosis is made from taking medical histories, which have rather sparse amounts of information. But today, you know, there are all these sensors that you can have, all these elaborate tests you can do um, that are very broad spectrum things. For example, you know, you can sequence your whole genome. I did that for myself, what, 11 years ago or something now? Um, and, uh, you know, that's a lot of data. Um, and it's like, how do you use this data? A lot of traditional medical diagnosis is like, do you have A or B? Okay, if it's A, then it might be this. If you have, if it's B, it might be that. It's not, here's a gigabyte of data. Now, what can you conclude from that? I mean, I, you know, my own feeling is that the future of medical diagnosis is much more, I mean, right now, what happens is you say, there's something wrong. You know, my, these, you know, this particular type of cell in my liver is doing this and that and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, but the fact is there's a huge diversity of things that can go wrong and it's not the case. And, and to bucket it and say, okay, you have disease X is, is often sort of missing the point. It isn't the case. So, so here's an interesting question that you can, uh, you can ask. If you look at biological organisms, right? They fall into species. They speciate. There's, you know, there's cats, there's dogs. There's not a cat-dog combination. Um, but if you look at medical diseases, should they, do they speciate, so to speak? Is it the case that medical diseases can be separated into you either have this or you have that? Um, probably much less so. Probably when it comes to, uh, you know, there's, there's probably a much more complicated story. Let me mention something. So, so back when I was a kid and learning a little bit about biology, you know, it was like, what is, what's in blood? Okay, it's red blood cells, it's white blood cells. Okay, that's, you know, you'd learn it's white blood cells. Okay, great. Well, of course, today, it's not just white blood cells. It's, you know, CD8 positive T cells with the, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's very much more finely granulated. And what you realize in the end is there's just huge numbers of different possible populations of cells, maybe almost an infinite number of possible kinds of cells. And this idea that you can sort of bucket them all and just say, it's a white blood cell, you know, that's all there is to say about it, isn't really right. And so, again, when you think about medical diagnosis, this question of whether you can bucket things into a limited number of possible diagnoses, which you can sort of describe in words and assign diagnosis codes to, it's not clear that that's really the right thing. I mean, for example, in nowadays, in oh, the, the standard diagnosis code system used in the US is a thing called ICD-9, which has, I think, about 30,000 possible diseases 
that are listed out and it's kind of a hierarchical system that lists out about 30,000 diseases. ICD-10 is the kind of emerging thing uh, used in many places and it I think has about 100,000 diseases. So the question is, are there really 100,000 sort of species of disease that we can assign to us humans or is it more like an arbitrary number, an unknown number, you know, an arbitrarily large number that depend on, uh, you know, the particular configuration of, of uh, uh, surface proteins on such and such a kind of cell, and there are an infinite number of possibilities for that, rather than just saying, oh, you have disease X. So the question is, in the, in the future, will it be the case that we still give this kind of medical diagnosis type of, type of thing, where we have a name for what's gone on? Because in, in general, what you can expect is that, you know, you'll have a treatment for what's happened, and that treatment will probably be much more detailedly programmable. So, for example, the um, uh, in um, you know a typical drug molecule, and there are only I don't know what two thousand different kinds of drug molecules that are approved, something like that. Um, a drug molecule, most drugs right now, what they do is they're a molecule. It's a certain shape, and that molecule fits into the shape of some other molecule in you. So, for example, the molecule for the drug can can because of fit into some particular other molecule in you and block that other molecule from operating or it can enhance the operation of that molecule but it's a very static kind of thing the molecule is just a certain shape it moves around it attaches it does its thing uh, one can imagine a world of sort of algorithmic drugs where the molecule itself or maybe some complex of molecules acts more like a molecular computer and sort of makes decisions much like the immune system has sort of a mechanism for acting more like a molecular computer and making more complex decisions rather than just saying, does it bind or not? Um, it's although it starts with a does it bind or not question. But um, so, you know, this kind of idea, so you potentially you have these algorithmic drugs, certainly something coming, you know, people talk about a lot personalized medicine, you know, given your particular genome, for example, can you make a specific drug that will be appropriate for you. Now, now, a lot of what that is right now is, is this drug that is an existing drug going to work better or worse on you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think one of the uh, potential silver linings from this pandemic that we've been in is that these vaccines that, that got so acceleratedly developed and, and approved, the, uh, the MR, messenger RNA vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, um, those vaccines make use of kind of a custom created uh, kind of sequence that's that's being fed to the immune system. Normally, you develop a vaccine and you and you sort of, uh, it's not something where you could just type on a computer, I want this sequence, put that in the vaccine. It's developed in a much less sort of, uh, in, a, in, a, in a much more chemical way, much less informational kind of way. But these vaccines, and, and they were, you know, originally when, when the, you know, a year ago, uh, the companies that developed these, it was a matter of days for them to produce a vaccine that would potentially be a vaccine that would, uh, you know, be effective against this particular virus. Um, it took a lot longer to figure out the precise dosing and which particular one of the possible sequences was the right one to use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but. Um, the, and, and one of the things, the reason that that technology existed is because people had developed it for cancer, um, for being able to essentially have the, our immune systems go attack cancer cells, which usually they're not able to do because the cancer cells tend to look too much like ourselves. 
to be able to be distinguished by the immune system. But if you can make sort of a, a vaccine-like thing that enhances the immune system and says, yeah, this thing here is really bad, you should go attack that. It has the potential to attack cancer cells um, and to be a, a, a therapy for, for cancer. Um, and so one of the things that is probably gonna be a result of this uh, pandemic story is the whole lipid nanoparticle delivery mechanism from mRNA vaccines, which was what um, got implemented, um, is something that can be used for, for arbitrary mRNA vaccines. And potentially, you know, if one has a particular tumor with a particular genetic sequence, because tumors are, are mostly a story of uh, cells that end up with different genetics than your cells, um, and uh, um, and, and genetics that causes those cells to replicate without bound. Um, by the way, in terms of sort of the computational way of thinking about things, one of the kind of classic problems with, uh, with programs, with Turing machines, um, the very idealized model of computation developed by Alan Turing back in 1936, um, the, uh, one of the classic problems is the so-called halting problem. If you've got this program, you start it running, Will it run forever, go into a loop or something, or will it eventually halt? And in a sense, that is the same problem as tumors, because the definition of a, of a malignant tumor is that it just keeps growing. It doesn't, it doesn't know to stop. I mean, us, us humans, our usual growth processes stop. There are certainly lower organisms where that isn't the case, where the organism will just keep growing all its life. It will keep adding more and more cells. But us humans are not like that. We grow until we're sometime in our teens or something, and then we stop. Um, and uh, uh, unless something like a, a tumor develops, in which case um, that just keeps growing, and that's eventually what causes trouble. But um, uh, in any case, the, so it's, it's kind of a classic halting problem-like thing. Given this particular genetic sequence, Will that lead to growth that goes on forever, doesn't halt, or will it stop? That's again one of these computational irreducibility stories of whether how you can even tell that. But in any case, the um, I was, was just going to say that that I think that the way that sort of medical uh, treatment is going to end up working in the end is these very much more personalized, uh, customized, uh, you know, algorithmic drugs particular sequences for, you know, uh, fed to the immune system in a particular way, those kinds of things. And so then the, the, the currently the kind of the, the workflow of medicine is you have symptoms, you get a diagnosis, based on the diagnosis, you get a treatment, you implement the treatment, you see what effect that has on the symptoms. But the sort of a different workflow is you go straight from symptoms to essentially a computed treatment. There's no diagnosis in the middle. There's nothing that says, this is the name for the thing you have. There's no discrete diagnosis code. It's just given these symptoms, given these measurements that got made, this is the algorithmic drug that should be produced. This is the Im Im immune system sequence that should be used. And then you directly apply that. And so it becomes much more like a, a little bit more like sort of a in, in the financial markets, for example, like a, a quantitative finance sort of automated system that's just watching what the, um, uh, you know, what the prices do and figuring out what to do, rather than something where you say, oh, I know what that is, that's a, a head and shoulders growth curve that um, exists in this financial system or something, and therefore I will do this. It's rather going straight from the data to the what to do. 
And I suspect that's the way medicine will go um, in the end, and that, that it's much more going to be a thing where you're kind of watching it as you might watch a financial portfolio and saying, let me add a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that and, and so on, rather than the kind of, oh, are you sick or are you not sick? Do you do this or do you not do this type thing? Uh, and I think, um, well, there's, there's lots more to say about this. It's, it's an interesting topic of, of um, uh, you know, just as for humans, we have maybe 100,000 different diseases that we know. I've been curious for software systems, like for a computer's operating system, you know, can you break down the things that go wrong to the computer's operating system into categories of disease, so to speak? You know, you plug the wrong thing into the into the computer. There was trauma associated with some device driver that uh, saw a bizarre pattern of of, um, of data coming in, or there was um, uh, something where the memory where some memory corruption happened. It was some sort of disease of the memory subsystem or whatever. You know, what is the classification of such diseases? A while ago, when Wolfram Alpha was much, was much newer, we had trouble with the servers for Wolfram Alpha um, crashing. And so for a while, we were interested in the mortality curves for servers. That is, all kinds of problems would build up, they would get all kinds of issues, and then eventually, after a few hours, the server would crash. And so we started looking at the mortality curves and comparing them to mortality curves for biological organisms, and they were actually surprisingly similar. Um, then we actually managed to tweak some things and fix some things, and it turns out we solved the lifetime problem. So we stopped researching that particular thing. So we don't know. We never got a, a general theory of kind of mortality for operating systems, but it's an interesting thing to, to potentially explore. Gosh, that was a long answer. I'm sorry to, to a... Um, Oh boy, there's so many interesting questions here. All right, there's one from Aaron here. What's the minimum amount of DNA that is obviously basic and could perform universal computation? Will be there some kind of lower bound for the complexity of life? People have been interested in synthetic biology in making sort of minimal from scratch organisms. Um, we don't know the answer to what the minimum sort of self-reproducing with proteins organism is. There's some pretty small pretty small ones. I mean, viruses don't replicate themselves. They have a host. Um, but uh, uh, the, the answer is it's not known. And I think people who try to get to that by making an engineering type design, oh, we need to have the thing have this piece so that it can do this and this and this, that will not give the minimal result. The minimal result will probably be some kind of sort of origin of life experiment where you just make all possible sequences and you see which ones reproduce themselves. And I, I know there have been some experiments done along those lines, but I don't think there's a definite result to that at this time. Um, I, I would guess that the answer is going to be quite small. I mean, thousands of base pairs at, at, at most, perhaps even smaller than that. Um, but in a sense, what, you know, part of the story, I suppose, is that, well, okay, so one of the issues is how much do we, you allow yourself outside of the DNA? That is, to what extent do you allow it to be inside a cellular structure? Because whenever, you know, there's, a, there's more to the story of, of sort of what's passed down between the generations in biological organisms than just the DNA. It's not only the DNA, but also the whole cellular structure. You know, there is an egg cell and the, that structure of that cell is what starts, is what gets used to start reproducing the next, next organism and so on. So it's a little bit unclear what, what you allow, you know, whether you allow the sort of lipid bilayer, you know, cell membrane and things like that, whether you allow other pieces um, in that story, or whether it's, um, and if you allow that, 
then my guess is it's, it's uh, I don't know, I, I would guess less than a thousand base pairs, but I don't know. And, and that's not known yet. Um, but, uh, uh, but yes, it's an interesting question. Given the apparatus, given the environment, like the cellular environment, what's the minimum size program in that cellular environment? There's a sort of quite different question. I mean, it's, it's in a sense, it's like saying, you know, what's the minimum sized universal computer that you can make as a Turing machine, as a cellular automaton, as a register machine? Well, all of those have some ambient apparatus for doing their computation. Um, and then you're simply asking within that ambient, uh, within that ambient apparatus, how big is the actual sort of rules for the actual thing itself? And so I suppose the same question would exist for biology. And my own guess would be less than a thousand base pairs, but I don't know. Okay, a few more general questions. And then, um, uh, well, actually, here's a question from RJ. Is there a fundamental computational boundary to super intelligent AI doctors being able to capable of connecting all medical specialties? Unfortunately, I think the answer is yes. I think it's a story of computational irreducibility again. It's like you are an organism that is performing a computation. The computation is doing something bad. Can you tweak the computation so that can you make an intervention that says change these bits, so to speak, to make the computation go back on the, on the right track again? The difficulty is computational irreducibility says you may not know what the consequences of changing those bits are. You may not know, you know, this particular vaccine that seems to be good for getting, you know, um, immunizing us against this virus. Maybe it has the consequence that in 30 years, it makes us all grow giant unicorn horns or something. They, it's, uh, it's, but, but it won't be clear for a long time what the, what the consequences are. And I think on a more local scale in medical interventions, it, it, it's in a sense, computational irreducibility is a story of never being able to know what the consequences will be with, with complete certainty. So that makes it sort of, that's a limitation on, uh, you know, can one, can one set things up to kind of know what's going to happen? Could one get the right answer for what medical intervention to make? And in general, you know, as you think about sort of, longevity and so on and and uh, you know how do we how do we live longer and how do we fix all the things that go wrong it's just like how do you keep that that computer operating system running forever if we could go in and start adjusting the bits and and controlling this and that and the other can we make our computer just run forever uh, I was noticing that we have some servers at our company that have been running for 10 years for example without being rebooted um so you know that's an example of where the operating system is, you know, that's that's pretty good for a for a computer operating system. Um, the uh, I think that um, you know, can we do the same thing for biological organisms? Uh, uh, even if with those operating systems they probably didn't have intervention, but even if we allow ourselves to intervene and say we're going to make this change, this change, this change, this tweak, this tweak, that tweak, can we do that in a way that sort of keeps us running forever, so to speak? And it may get arbitrarily difficult to do that. It may be that that you know a tweak, uh, another tweak, and another tweak, and another tweak that sort of becomes arbitrarily difficult to do it. I think somebody asked here um, about. Uh, let's see. Somebody was asking something about longevity research. Um, yeah, Nutty was asking why are we not prioritizing research in longevity? So you know the the real question is why do we get old? what actually happens and what can we do about it? You know, 
we don't even really know what aging is. There are several different mechanisms. There's sort of oxidative damage to cells of molecules generally just starting to sort of degrade. There's, uh, there's sort of genetic degradation. There's the telomeres, which are the end caps on our DNA, 50. Would start off, we start off with about 50 of them, and it's like they seem to degrade over the course of a lifetime and over the course of cell divisions, although you seem to be able to get more of them. And certainly for the next generation, there are enzymes that, that will um, add in more telomeres. So it's not, it's not really a, a one-way street there. But there are these different mechanisms that people know for sort of the general things that seem to be degrade as one gets older. Um, you know, not a lot is known. I mean, not, not, there's no final, this is it. It's not clear that there will be a single, this is it. It's known that there are some organisms that live longer, shorter. There's correlations between different kinds of things like metabolic rate and lifetime, things like that. Um, there's cases of uh, organisms that can hibernate for a long time, all kinds of things. And, you know, back, I remember 30 something years ago, Whenever I would ask people about aging and longevity and so on, biologists, they'd be like, oh, no, nobody studies that. Uh, no, you know, it's, it's too difficult. There's nothing to say about it. It's kind of a disreputable field. I think perhaps as the population um, has sort of on average in countries like the US gotten a bit older, um, people have gotten more interested in this. And there, there is a, a decent amount of work that's going on in aging and longevity and so on, but, but certainly not as much as there could be. Um, and people still think it's kind of like an insolvable problem. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, back from, uh, you know, from every kind of, um, you know, story from thousands of years ago, it's like somebody wants to achieve immortality and find the elixir of eternal life and so on, or eternal youth or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, people say that's kind of, that's just science fiction, so to speak. Um, and it, it isn't possible, but it's not clear it isn't possible. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's, that is certainly... The important challenge for, for medicine and biomedical research is, well, can you make it possible? Because that would be kind of neat. Um, and you can, you can discuss the whole question of whether longer lives are good for society or, or just good for the individual. That's a complicated question. I mean, it's kind of one of the things where, where sometimes, um, uh, you know, in a rather macabre way, it's sometimes said that the, the progress of science is measured in a, a procession of funerals, so to speak, in the sense that once somebody has a particular way of doing things, like doing science, that they learn when they're 20 years old or whatever, they'll just keep doing it their whole lives. And if their lives get longer and longer and longer, they're going to be more and more people who say, this is the way to do it. Nothing new is needed. And that can slow down progress, if one's interested in progress, um, to have sort of this, uh, you know, people, people being around a long time, so to speak, I, I think, I think as, as somebody as an, as an older person who uh, enjoys their life, I, I think being around longer seems like a pretty good idea, uh, at least for the individual. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a, a, a story for that. Um, let's see, uh, questions here. Okay, let's take a couple more biology questions here. Um, from Aaron. What makes HeLa cells immortal? How common are they in humans? Uh, was, uh, okay, so let me tell you the story of that. So um, uh, back in the 1950s, okay, first point is the typical cell that we have, cells divide, they undergo mitotic division, 
a cell breaks and divides in two, it ends up with two cell nuclei, the DNA gets replicated, et cetera. Um, and that's mitotic, that's standard cellular division. And that happens when we all start from a single cell and the first stages of, of our existence consist of just essentially exponential growth of cells. Every cell just divides in two, divides in two, divides in two, et cetera. Um, eventually that exponential growth stops being exponential and we end up, as I was mentioning earlier, we end up as humans with a with a fixed number of cells, you know, some number of what is it, ten trillion cells or something. Um, that is the um, that is what we're going to get, um, you know, with some slight changes, and you know, you can. Um, uh, uh, but but that's basically the size we're going to get to. We're not like, I think, uh, is it redwood trees? Trees, I think, keep growing forever. Is that right? Certainly, some some types of mollusks keep growing forever. Some fish keep growing forever. You know, if you have a goldfish, it will just keep growing and growing, 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 you know, as 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 long as it lives. Um, we don't we don't work that way. Um, we we get to a fixed size and then stop. Well, at the cellular level, these mitotic divisions was discovered in the 19 late 1950s, 1960s, maybe, um, a thing that's usually called the Hayflick limit, which is a cell, it divides, then its progeny divide again, they divide again, they divide again. That only happens about 50 times. So a given cell starting from this sort of the, the, the original first cell, you only get 50 divisions. So mathematically, that means the maximum number of cells you can get is two to the 50th from that. Um, that's just because each time you divide by, with two and, and that's the number of cells you can get to. So one thing that was discovered in much more recent times was the sort of biological origin of that limiting, uh, of that limitation. And what it seems to be is these things called telomeres um, on our DNA, long strand of DNA all gets curled up, but the ends of the DNA are things called telomeres, which are repeats. I think they're ATT, oh, I don't remember what they are, but there's some, some collection of A's and T's mostly, base pair sequences, which are just simple repeats. And sort of when we're born, well, at least when we start off in as an embryo, uh, we end up with our, our cells have 50, about 50 telomeres um, at the ends of every every uh, piece of DNA. And those telomeres kind of hold the DNA together in some way. Every time there's a replication, one of those telomeres sort of falls off, at least that's in the first approximation. Uh, I say a first approximation because you can go and, of course, I, as a data-oriented person, have done this for myself. You can go and get your telomere lengths measured. Um, it, the standard genetic sequencing doesn't do very well on these repeat-type things, so it's kind of a special measurement method to measure the telomeres. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, you get back this report that says you are effectively such and such old according to your telomere length. And, uh, you know, I felt proud because I counted as being less old than I actually am according to telomere length. But actually, the footnote is, you know, live it, lead a healthy life and you'll get more telomeres. Um, so it, it's not clear, as I say, it's not clear that's a fundamental limit. But that is a there is this idea that cells only replicate a certain number of times and then stop. Okay, it's also the case that when you actually grow cells in a, you know, in a Petri dish or something, the cells will grow. And when they physically run into other cells, there are uh, chemicals released that cause those cells normally to stop growing. And that's good if you're a mammal, you know, you, you, you're gonna get a fixed size, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, what happens in tumors is that mechanism is turned off. Both of these mechanisms are turned off. The tumor cells just keep replicating forever. 
And, and that's a really bad thing if you're, you know, given that we have like 10 trillion cells or whatever, and you suddenly you have a tumor which has another trillion cells, two trillion cells, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's eventually going to kind of strangle some, some critical system in you, and that's, that's a bad thing. But, but that means that tumor cells can live forever. And because they just keep replicating, they keep replicating, they keep replicating forever. And um, a person named Henrietta Lacks in the 1950s, 1953-ish maybe, uh, died of some, uh, some particular kind of tumor. And um, the, uh, the, the hospital she was at uh, had tissue samples. And in a story, I don't know the full details of it, but it's a it's a it's not a great story of medical consent and and the way that all of these things work. Um, but it was a very early time then, and it wasn't the, the the definitions were were much less clear than they are today. But in any case, the the result was some of the tissue from this person's tumor um, was was uh, was grown, and it keeps on growing, and it's grown forever. And so, you know, the total number of, you know, Henrietta Lacks's cells and, and DNA is huge. And um, because it's a very standard in, in, in biology labs, when you're testing the effect on a human cell of such and such a thing, well, you'll often use a HeLa cell, um, Henrietta Lacks cell, so to speak. Um, so it's, you know, the particular details of, of um, uh, you know, of those cells, I think um, uh, I think Henrietta Lacks was an African American woman, um, and so whatever the detailed genetics of that are, those are the things that you know the initial tests get made on for almost every biological experiment on human cells, just because they're the most common kinds of um, uh, um, uh, of of, um, uh, of of cells used to test things. When you get to fancier tests, you test on mice and things like that. And then there are these sort of uh, genetically pure lines of mice that get bred for particular purposes and so on. But when it's at a cellular level, HeLa cells are the most common. And, and HeLa cells, that works because, and of course, the reason they're not typical human cells is because they're immortal cells. They, they, they can just keep replicating forever. And whether that matters for testing the response of some particular kind of drug or whatever else, it's not clear. You don't know that. That's why you have to go on and do other medical tests. But that's kind of the first step in, is it roughly going to work in a human cell? Well, if it works, if it doesn't work in these immortal cells, it probably won't work in ordinary human cells. Um, there's a question here, why can't we reproduce cell membranes? Are they made of proteins? Yeah, so, cell membranes do reproduce. They, they, they they simply form when a cell breaks in two, it forms two separate membranes. But that's a process that doesn't, uh, let me see, am I, am I right here? That's a process that is more, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a more sort of chemical process. It's not a genetically mediated process. There, there are many things on the cell membrane. There are many little, little things, receptor sites and things like that that stick up through the cell membrane. Those are produced by the standard genetic apparatus, but the cell membrane itself is a simpler object that is really um, uh, you know, purely a sort of a pure uh, molecular uh, thing that doesn't rely on the whole apparatus of, of genomics and so on. Um, I, I'm... Some friends of mine actually had a, I don't know what's happened to what they were doing, but they had a company for making artificial cells. And I suppose that the, the story of lipid nanoparticles is probably not completely unlike 
sort of having a very minimal artificial cell, so to speak. Um, and that's uh, that, that's sort of a place where the, the, the RNA can live. Um, and uh, uh, just like in an ordinary cell, there's, you know, there's this, um, uh, this membrane and inside is the cytoplasm and that, that's the kind of the gelatinous stuff that all of the chemical reactions and all the, all the uh, organelles, all the sort of uh, pieces of the cell operate. Okay, well, let's see. Um, gosh, lots of interesting questions here, my gosh. Um, okay, that was enough of biology. I've spent nearly an hour talking about biology, but it was, it was fun. So thanks, thanks for asking those questions. As a question from Atore, that's a more kind of um, personal practices question. It's like, how do you organize or prepare for giving a talk? I'm a terrible person to ask that question of, because uh, in fact, this happened just a couple of days ago. I was talking about the first anniversary of our physics project, and I was complaining to my team that because of various things, I had no time to prepare. And um, one person on my team observed that I give much better talks when I haven't prepared than when I have. So. Really, for me, the, um, the beginning is very important. The, um, if I can get, well, a couple of things. Understanding a little bit about the audience and getting some feel for the audience is important. And at least having some image of what the audience might be like is important, for me at least. The very beginning is important. If I'm off to a, a sort of a weird start and I'm you know, getting very, very technical and I'll go on very technical, or if I'm, if I'm very kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, the, the, the start is important and I have to, but then for me, if it's a subject that I know reasonably well, I'm, uh, you know, probably preparation is not the most important thing for me. Um, now, you know, I've given thousands and thousands of talks in my life. So it's uh, when I started off doing this, I used to prepare these overhead projector transparencies, right? I'm ancient, so that was a, these days it would be, you know, slides and notebooks or PowerPoints or whatever it is, um, that um, would be sort of an outline of the talk. The thing you have to avoid though, is, you know, reading off, you know, by the time you're reading from the thing that is on the screen, sort of all bets, you know, you've lost everything because like you put this thing up on the screen and like the audience can see it. And like, if you then read the words that are on the screen, it's like, why are we listening to this person saying this? We can just read it. Um, so I think, uh, uh, and I tend to, uh, you know, when I do talks that involve visual kinds of things, I tend to have what I usually call a slide farm, which is um, something where off screen on another screen, I'll have a whole collection of, of possible images as thumbnails that I can then pull up as a, as a slide on the main screen. And that's a, that's a convenient way to do things. Um, and I have to say that, that um, uh, well, it is the case for me, I think I give my better talks are either completely unprepared or 100% prepared. I mean, there are cases where I'm giving some very short remark on something or some such other thing where I know I have a lot to say. For, for me, it's often, as you perhaps can tell from these, uh, 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 these live streams, it's sometimes harder for me to say things shortly than longly, so to speak. And so if I have to say, I've got two minutes to give some comment at some uh, you know, uh, ceremonial event of some kind, I'll often 
end up writing out every word I'm going to say, because I know that I can't get, you know, if I'm just starting and starting to talk about things and so on, it'll be 10 minutes that goes by before I really said anything. So, so that's sort of my second, my first mode is don't prepare at all. And my second mode is um, uh, have, you know, every word written out. Um, I think that for me, it helps that, you know, explaining things that one has explained things before helps in explaining things again. And I, I will say that, for example, uh, these live streams are um, uh, very interesting for me. They're very educational for me. Like, for example, today I was talking about medical kinds of things. And some of the things that I explained to you, I had never explained that way before. And I came up with a better explanation here than I'd ever had before. And hopefully I'll remember that explanation the next time and uh, that, that something like that comes up. And you know, it's, a, it's sort of an incremental process of you explain things and then you get better at explaining those things. And most of the things I talk about, I've sort of, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, have, I'll have thought about it before. Occasionally, like I gave a talk, um, oh, when was it? A couple of weeks ago about my recent work on thinking about the foundations of consciousness and its relationship to physics. I'd never given a talk about that before, but I just written, a, a piece about it. So I had kind of a, the, the logical structure was in mind, so to speak, about how it worked. Um, some of these things, sometimes there are things which are comparatively simple in logical structure. Sometimes they're really quite complicated in logical structure and sort of holding in one's mind all those steps is, is something which it, it's helped if one's already written something about it or already given some parts of that description before. But um, I, I don't think that all of those aspects apply to everyone. And I think outlining what you're roughly going to say, I, I mean, I guess I've done that. I don't do that as much these days, but but sort of giving an outline of what I'm going to say um, is, you know, the, the five, 10 bullet points or something of of topics is, is something that I have found useful in the past. Um, there's several very interesting questions here, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to avoid one that's going to get me into into a giantly long discussion because I don't have too much more time today. Um, there's a question from Zach here. How many hours should a scientist work per day? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, I think it varies with person. You know, I tend to work pretty much, if I'm not asleep, I'm not eating or generally, uh, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll work, I don't know, I haven't measured it precisely, but I'm guessing around 14, 15 hours per day. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, for me, work is a, is a thing with very fuzzy boundaries. Like, for example, the thing I've been doing for the past hour, is it work? Is it not work? I don't know. It's fun for me. It contributes to things that I try and try to do as productive things in the world um you know it's it's so if you include things like this i'm probably working pretty much all the time i'm i'm awake um in that sense of work uh i think that um if it comes if it's a question of you've got a blank sheet of paper you're staring at it you're trying to figure out the next thing to do i don't spend a lot of time doing that at all for me, it's very important to have these kind of matrices in which I'm structures in which I'm doing my work. Like, for example, if I'm writing a document about something, if I'm trying to 
that is a way of kind of concretely moving forward with something I'm thinking about. If I'm trying to write a program about something, if I'm trying to just do a live experiment, do some kind of uh, computational experiment, these are things which sort of allow you to incrementally move forward without being in the situation, I'm staring at a blank sheet of paper, what do I do next? I, I spend a very small amount of time in the equivalent of staring at a blank piece of paper and figuring out what, what's gonna happen next. Almost all the time that I spend doing sort of science-y things, I spend, I'm writing a program, I'm seeing what happens when I run the program, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm writing a description of what's going on, I'm trying to write an exposition of something, I'm explaining it to people, those kinds of things. They're, they're things with structure. I think it is, uh, for me, it would be very difficult to just sort of sit and think in the abstract. And, and for me, it's been very important in, in my life, I've sort of alternated between doing basic science and doing technology kinds of things. And that alternation has been very important. It, it really helps, you know, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm working on um, uh, the, um, um, I'm working on uh, uh, some of these questions about, oh, parallel computation and these multi-way things and all this kind of stuff. And there's sort of theoretical questions about that, but it's really useful to know what the point is. And one of the points is, I actually want to build this stuff into Wolfram language as a practical way to do distributed computing. And having that sort of practical point is a very important driver of the more conceptual theoretical things that I'm thinking about. So for me, it's kind of like, uh, if you ask how much time should one spend in sort of unstructured scientific thought the answer for me is very little. How much time in sort of moving forward the the machinery, the mechanisms, the actual the actual thing, concrete things one's doing a lot. Um, you know, I, I, I've noticed that I'm very bad. For example, as me as an example, I'm I'm really bad at just like thinking in the abstract without a computer, without even a piece of paper. You know, it's like if I'm just sitting there, you know, with just you know just thinking about things in my mind, I, I don't think I do very well. And I don't think I can keep doing that for very long, very productively. I feel like, oh my gosh, I got to write that down. I've got to sort of, otherwise I'm kind of looping, trying to hold that in my memory. Um, so I don't forget that. And then I have to go on to the next thing. But if I'm concretely, you know, doing something in a notebook, writing code, this kind of thing, that gives me a structure that allows me to kind of much more effectively build up a bigger thought, so to speak. I think one of the things that, um, I think there was a question actually earlier about, about languages and how they affect the way we think about things. For me, sort of a lot of the things that I do in science base, are based on sort of this computational paradigm for thinking about things and having this computational language or language that I spent the last how many decades working on, um, you know, that for me is a, is a critical environment, a language in which to structure my thoughts about computational kinds of things. And without that, I just wouldn't be able to build any significant tower myself, at least. I don't know for other people so much that, you know, being able to build sort of this complicated conceptual tower, it's like there's this computational idea and it's concretely represented by this piece of code, which I can understand. It builds on this, it builds on that, it builds into this, it builds a tower. And that's where I can actually think about things. If it was like, I got to hold it all in my head, it's... Um, uh, you know, I don't know how it works. I, I know um, in uh, the movie coming out, uh, was, uh, the director of which I happen to know, called, uh, which is a, a movie version of Dune. Um, and in the Dune universe, I know that AIs have been, have been outlawed. 
And so the best they can do is have humans who are all kind of juiced up and who kind of are, are kind of thinking like computers. I'm going to be interested to see how, how they manage to treat the, um, the kind of uh, the way that those humans do their sort of human level computation. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, like having a, a program run in a human, so to speak. Um, and uh, I don't think it works very well. I think that um, uh, even you know in the Dune universe, well, they can have special kinds of humans, and that's that's what you get to do in science fiction. But in 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 real life, so to speak, with just us us simple humans, it doesn't work so well. Now maybe maybe one day when there are you know as the symbiosis of us and computers gets better, the sort of working together of us and computers gets better. Um, it's unclear how that will work. I mean, maybe as I think about something, you know, for me writing a you know wolfram language notebook or something is concretifying the thoughts that i'm having it's taking the thoughts that i'm having turning them into computational language putting them on a, putting them down letting them build up and so on um, and that for me is sort of a symbiosis between me and the computer now maybe there'll come a time when you know we'll have enough linkage to brains and things that our pure thoughts will be able to be remembered external to us uh, I don't know how well that will work, because I think that the crispening of our thoughts to turn them into a well-designed language may be something that is necessary. It's kind of like, yes, you could store that. It will be like storing every piece of scratch work, but it's not all that useful. Storing the scratch work is less useful than storing your summary of the scratch work, so to speak. And so, you know, in a sense, what we're, uh, you know, as we turn things into language, we are turning our thoughts into something that's worth storing, so to speak. And by the time we've turned them into language, we might as well be saying them, writing them down, whatever else. Now, the, the freedom that we have, the thing we haven't had, is anything beyond human natural language. That's the important role of computational language, is it's a way to, to represent, to leverage sort of what computation makes possible over and above what is merely what we humans can think about and think in terms of ordinary human natural language. And um, uh okay well okay it, it's very tempting to go on and and um and uh talk about more of these questions but i think it is um it is well i could go on for a little tiny bit here all right drink of water and then i go on for a tiny bit all right a couple more here okay there's a there's a question from travel why isn't nuclear power used more? And is there a way to make it smaller and safer so it can be used like a portable power generator? Okay, there's a, there's a physics problem, which is how does nuclear power work? Well, it works using nuclear chain reactions. A nucleus of some radioactive element like uranium-235 um, uh, spontaneously self-destructs very slowly, lifetime for a single Uranium-235 atom is in the billion year type range. Um, when it self-destructs, it produces essentially these particles, these fragments of the nucleus. They go out and they hit other nuclei, which cause those nuclei to not spontaneously self-destruct, but to be, to be, to, causes them to immediately self-destruct. They're kind of kicked and they self-destruct. And that process, produces this kind of chain reaction where more and more and more nuclei are self-destructing. And it's the self-destruction of those nuclei that, um, uh, or the destruction of those nuclei, I should say, that causes energy to be released. And that's where nuclear energy comes from. 
is the the sort of the the disintegration of those nuclei and nuclear fusion, which is what's used in hydrogen bombs and things, it's it's the other way. But for these for, for ordinary nuclear power, as nuclear power operates right now without fusion devices, um, it's all about the self-destruction of very large or the destruction of very large nuclei um, into, into smaller pieces. And that's something that relies on this kind of chain reaction idea. Well, there is a certain... Um, not sure if this is fully correct, but I think it's correct. I mean, the, there's a certain uh, critical mass that is associated with the, the minimum size that you need in order to have a self-sustaining chain reaction. How does that work? That's, that relies on uh, neutron mean-free paths. How does that work? Um, okay, a bit more thought required there, but my, there's, a, there's a definite critical mass that is necessary to have a, um, a self-sustaining nuclear reaction. And, I, and that, that critical mass is a certain size. And that's, so there's a lower limit on the size you need for that to, to work. Um, and um, I think that the, um, uh, so, so that's one physical limitation. Um, I think it's, it's like, you know, I don't know, it's, it's a sphere, how big is it? Like, I think 20 centimeters maybe for uranium-235. Uh, diameter of the sphere, something like that, if I remember correctly. Um, and I think there's no way to make a self-sustaining nuclear reaction with, with less material than that, I think. Um, so that's one limitation. The other limitation is, uh, you know, how do you make it safe? Well, there are, there are ideas of having, you know, a typical nuclear reactor power station, for example, it's in this big pressure vessel, and these pressure vessels are supposed to last maybe a hundred years, and you know that they're, they're they're sort of rated. I think they were originally rated for thirty years, but mostly they they've been extended to like hundred year lifespans and things. And um, you know, there's kind of an idea that there might be ways to make nuclear power so that you can just put it in something that will be permanently encased. That's something people are interested in doing when you have uh, nuclear spent nuclear fuel that still is radioactive. How do you embed it in something like glass or some such other thing so that it will just stay, uh, you know, never escape. You can just bury it somewhere and forget about it. And a million years from now, it will still be there and nothing will have destroyed it. That's a challenging thing to be sure about because it depends on geology and all kinds of things. And it's an even more challenging thing. What are the warning signs that you put up that are supposed to work even 10,000 years from now? That's an interesting problem. If, uh, you know, if there was a, a sign on a pyramid that said, you know, uh, doom to everybody who enters here. Um, well, if we didn't know those hieroglyphs now, it's it's unclear that we would know that this is a, you know, don't enter here, bad news, bad idea, the pyramid will collapse or whatever else. You know, that signage would probably have been lost in the last 4,000 years, or at least it's the understanding of how to read it. Um, but I mean, in terms of, of um, I think the main problem with, with uh, nuclear power as a sort of safety issue is the, the very fundamental components are these radioactive elements and radioactivity is bad. And when radioactivity gets out as it did in like the Fukushima uh, nuclear accident in, 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 um, uh, in Japan, um, it's, uh, you know, nuclear, uh, it's kind of like, you know, it's like, like, okay, this virus that's infected the world, right? How much actual virus is there? If I think the total amount of virus would fit in one's hand. The all the little virus particles that have gone all over the earth 
and infected all, all sorts of people, you know, the total number of these particles is really small. So it's just because when you distribute that broadly enough and each individual virus is causes enough trouble that it really matters. And it's a little bit the same with nuclear kinds of things that, you know, a pretty small volume of nuclear material, if spread out over a large area, um, you know, each, each particular a uh, piece of, you know, each particular grain of dust that is radioactive and things can cause trouble. And the fact that that can be very widely distributed, that's that's sort of a bad thing. Now, obviously, when it gets dilute enough, like with the virus, you know, if you're outside and you're not, you know, breathing right at somebody else, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get infected with the virus because the Earth's atmosphere is pretty huge. And by the time that little virus particle is out floating around in the Earth's atmosphere, the you know, the, the chance that it gets to you in one virus particle on its own is, is almost certainly not enough to lead to infection. Um, it's, it's, um, uh, it, it's, it's sort of an absurdly, uh, you know, the orders of magnitude is such that it's absurdly impossible to get infected that way. But, um, but you know, with, with radioactivity, the, the difficulty is that just it can get spread very easily. It's just individual grains of dust or something, or individual, even at the level of individual atoms, and so that's, you know, it's it, you have to really enclose it very well, and that's problematic. Now, it's not impossible to do that. I mean, there are plenty of things which, if they get out, cause a lot of trouble. There are plenty of uh, uh, very nasty, toxic chemicals that are kept nicely enclosed in things, so it's, it's not an impossible thing by any means. Um, it doesn't help sometimes that radioactivity, because it's releasing energy, makes things hot, and so that, that can make it harder to, to enclose things. But I don't think that's a... I don't think that's a fundamental limitation. And people people design these different kinds of methods for developing uh, nuclear power systems. One of the issues right now is your average nuclear power station is really expensive. I mean, you know, a billion dollars is not out of, you know, it's not an unreasonable price for a nuclear power station. And one of the reasons for that is that essentially every nuclear power station is a custom built thing. It's like, we've got this site, it's sitting in this place, it's gonna have these characteristics. It's, there's no production line where somebody's mass producing nuclear power stations. Um, if somebody built that production line, probably you'd get the price down to, I don't know, 50, $100 million per, per nuclear power station. And that would be a much different proposition from what it is today. Um, but the cost of, of producing, you know, the making the production line, that's really expensive. Um, and so the unit cost once you've got the production line up and running is significantly lower, but you have to make a commitment to just be generating, you know, thousands of nuclear reactors that would put in different places. So it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an economic issue that's kind of difficult to, to unravel. All right. I'm, there's several questions here that I really want to talk about the next, next time here, but, but um, there's one about... Uh, uh, computational irreducibility and economies and things. I might actually have more to say about that next week because I've actually been thinking about that recently. And uh, there's just, okay, my last question for today from Fat Man here. Um, what do you feel is the place of philosophy in modern science? Okay, interesting question. So, you know, in some sense, philosophy is about thinking about things before you have a very well-defined framework for thinking about them. So, you know, philosophy is like, think about it in the most flexible way you can, or at least that's, you know, that's a definition of philosophy. As soon as you've got science, you've got 
you know, for example, you've got mathematics, you've got these particular areas. It's like, well, now we've got a framework. We don't need the general way of thinking about things. We can go and use the specific way of thinking about things that is much more efficient than the general philosophical way of thinking about things. I mean, it's worth remembering that in the history of science for, for many, many years in the, you know, in the history of science, it was, you know, science was natural philosophy, you know, from Aristotle uh, in, in a couple of thousand years ago to, uh, to well into well, until the 1600s. Um, it was really a story of, if you want to know about nature, what you would do is you would think about natural philosophy. You would ponder how nature works by thinking about it using general thinking, so to speak. And so you would, the, what people imagined was that just by thinking about stuff, you'd figure out how the natural world works. Now, when science got developed, when modern science got developed, when mathematical science got developed, there became these frameworks which could zoom forward and figure things out in a much more efficient way than by just thinking in a general thinking kind of way. You know, I saw this in a very explicit way. Well, I, I should say a couple of things. So first of all, famously in 1687, important data in history of science was when Isaac Newton published his Principia Mathematica, the full title of which in Latin was Mathematical Principles, that's what Principia Mathematica means, of natural philosophy. So what Newton was doing was going from this, this just think about nature by using the general tools of thinking and philosophy to mathematical principles, apply mathematical thinking to think about natural philosophy. It was sort of the, the watershed of go from pure sort of thinking like with philosophy to using mathematics to think about the natural world. And at this point, we now have this other paradigm of computation to think about the natural world. But uh, the, the um, uh, so I, I, I got to see very sort of directly in 2009 when we released Wolfram Alpha, uh, one of the things Wolfram Alpha is all about is answering questions about the world. And there have been efforts to make such systems to do that for, for many years before, before Wolfram Alpha came out. And one of the things was that all those systems kind of had the idea that it was all about general thinking, that you would be kind of reasoning with logic and, and sort of methods of reasoning about how things should happen in the world. So, you know, if you want to study some mechanical system, you would reason about how well when you push on a lever, one side goes down, the other side goes up, and this happens and that happens with pure philosophical style reasoning. Okay. So with Wolfram Alpha, we didn't do that. Wolfram Alpha uses mathematics, it uses physics. It's like you just turn that question into a piece of mathematical physics, and then you just grind it and you get to the answer. And I remember the folks who'd worked on some of these sort of AI-based reasoning, question-answering systems. It's like, this kind of isn't fair. You know, we're working on it based on reasoning, based on sort of philosophical type thinking. You guys get to cheat and just use modern science, the 300 years of development of modern science to just jump to the answer. So that was an example of sort of the contrast between sort of philosophical style thinking and modern science mathematics style thinking. I think that the thing that I've realized in, um, uh, as I've worked on a lot of areas of, of, of science, a lot of things that I've figured out in science, like computational irreducibility, like a lot of things to do with computational language design, these are essentially 
questions that philosophers have talked about uh, often for hundreds, thousands of years. Um, it's very interesting to be able to give sort of a, a scientific approach to those questions, which makes them much more concrete. You can kind of ask a question, you know, what is consciousness? How does it work? Well, that's a, you can argue about that. It's just a word. What does the word mean? It means this to me, that to you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you start saying, what does it mean for, for example, the laws of physics, you, you have an anchor that allows you to start saying something much more concrete and allows you to sort of scientificize that, that kind of discussion. And that's been some, but, but knowing the sort of philosophical grounding, knowing kind of the structure, the strategy of what you're trying to get to, that's something that philosophy gives you and it's important. For example, I happen to be right now working on the question of why does the universe exist? Which is a, uh, an interesting question that I think we're actually gonna be able to say some things about. Um, and uh, which I had not expected at all. I thought that was a question. I didn't think, even think that was a philosophy question. I thought that was a theology question. I thought that was a question that couldn't, wouldn't even have a thinking type foundation, but it turns out it looks like it does. And, and you can kind of understand it from a science point of view and it's pretty neat. And hopefully I'll have something to say about it in a few weeks. Um, but in any case, the, the thing that, um, uh, you know, that's a place where, so, so in a sense, philosophy, is pretty good at giving you the broad outline of where are you trying to go? What's the structure? What are you trying to think through? I don't think it's so good when it comes to very formal kinds of things where you say, now let's lock in and just compute what the answer is. Philosophy doesn't really do that. It turns into maybe philosophical logic goes more in that direction, but really that locks, you know, what you have to go to something computational. You can represent, you know, the philosophy gives you what are you trying to figure out? You know, free will versus determinism. What roughly is the question? You have to lock down that question more precisely using essentially more scientific ways of thinking about things. And, um, and then you, uh, uh, you kind of can go, um, uh, and, and that's kind of the, the arc of what happens. But I, I think what is for me very interesting is, um, uh, is going, you know, taking the things one's understanding in science and saying, what does this mean for questions and philosophy? And can one use the sort of outline of ideas that philosophy suggests to understand how uh, things uh, kind of fit together in, um, uh, uh, in so how these sort of conceptual blocks fit together? So I think that's, you know, understanding that conceptual blocking is important. I think philosophy as a field, uh, you know, a lot of the ideas of philosophy are terrific things for people to think about at all sort of stages because they're things where everybody can have an opinion about some question in ethics or something like that. Whereas in science, you have to know a lot of facts to have a useful opinion. So it's, it's a good place to sort of practice thinking about things in general. Um, and I think that that's, uh, um, uh, and, and you know, I, I think if I were to say things that I've thought about, sometimes things I've figured out, sort of guided by philosophical thinking but then to me i don't really know that i know what i'm talking about until i have a more sort of structural computational scientific approach i think sometimes in academic philosophy today there's you know it gets very elaborate and it's very jargonized and it's very much you know talking about very much it's, it's i think you know I, i'm not sure that i decode it very well but it is a um uh, you know a lot of philosophy philosophy is a field that 
where people are still referring to Aristotle and people are still discussing Aristotle 2000 years later. There are fields like, I don't know, some areas of biomedicine, for example, where the paper's more than three years old, it's old news. Nobody's going to talk about it. But in philosophy, if it's 2000 years old, you're still talking about it. And I think in some ways that's a healthy feature. I didn't think that when I was younger, but I think now in some ways that's a healthy feature um, because these things, you know, until they get scientificized, they don't get solved. There's still things that are sort of rattling around in the in the thinking sphere, so to speak. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think if I were to ask about things I've worked on and whether there are flows from sort of philosophical thinking, I was talking about sort of more academic philosophy, I would say that there's, for me, the best philosophy that's written about is philosophy, which the common person could perfectly well understand. By the time the philosophy is, is steeped in science sounding jargon, but it's still philosophy, I get suspicious because I think it is not as good a system, as good a formal system as science or mathematical logic or something like that is. It is a system that has a much fuzzier way of deducing things. And I think sometimes the jargon is kind of a, you know, gives it the, the veneer, the coating of something scientific without having the raw sort of horsepower of something scientific inside. Um, so I tend to be more suspicious of that, but I think it's often when it's sort of plain language and it's pure argument that can be explained in plain language, that can be quite powerful and, and quite a good guiding force for thinking about things in science. All right, I'm being reminded that I'm late for something. So I think it's, it's time for me to wrap up here. And um, uh, I look forward to, um, yeah, uh, encourage you to subscribe to our channel. Come again next week and um, uh, see you again then. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.